so often throughout the course of history. Patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Brian Hyde. Welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. Thanks for joining us here on the America Out Loud Network. You know, that uh, that never-ending quest for clarity. I'm very happy to be a part of that. Thankful that you're a part of it as well. And the hard part here is, I think it's it's easy to get tempted to, to focus more on, well, here's what I'm against, here's who I oppose, as opposed to being, you know, absolutely strong on who you are and what you stand for. And I know it may seem like a subtle distinction, but I think this is one of the more important distinctions that any one of us can make, assuming that we really want to be, you know, a a force for good in the world. So with all those lofty ideals right out there in front, I'm now going to turn around and uh, appear to violate them by focusing on personalities and politics for a little bit. And, and I guess I'm putting this out there with that disclaimer that normally I spend very little time talking about, well, did you hear what this and that person in Washington, D.C. has been saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's the, there are so many daily tattlers out there that uh, keep us all stirred up with the political melodrama. And, you know, you, you look at uh, January 6th, wasn't that long ago. Maybe you saw some of the, um, the different... Uh, press opportunities, the the chances to preen before the cameras that the political class was engaging in. Oh, we're remembering the most horrific attack since Pearl Harbor on our sacred democracy, this temple of democracy and so forth. And it's all just a performance. Because these same people who are suddenly waxing so poetic and so, so uh, you know, absolutely impassioned about the need to, to defend democracy and to make sure that we are just representing the people are the very same people who climb out of that Washington, D.C. cesspool just enough to piddle on the Constitution and then go back to building their own personal fiefdoms. And it's really pretty sickening once you catch on to what they're doing. But... I digress. See, I'm already getting caught up in the, this is why I, I tend to limit my intake of news out of the nation's capital, just because it's so easy to get caught up in the, in the anger and the frustration, which I, I think the, the political class thrives on. That's what keeps us divided. That's what keeps us polarized. Nevertheless, I've been watching with great interest as uh, Dr. Fauci was called to account by Senator Rand Paul Earlier this week and uh, on Monday, Project Veritas released documents showing that uh, an organization called EcoHealth Alliance apparently approached the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency or DARPA seeking funding for its research into SARS viruses in rats. 
only to be turned down because of DARPA's gain-of-function concerns. So EcoHealth then turned to Fauci's NIAID, which seemingly did research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology that led to COVID's spread throughout the world. Now, when quizzed about these documents before the Senate, Dr. Fauci denied the charges, but if you listen very, very carefully, he denied a strong man of his own making, or straw man, rather, of his own making. So the bombshell that came out was that DARPA refused to accept EcoHealth's proposal for bat virus research in China. And it did so because EcoHealth's proposal failed to acknowledge that it was obviously doing gain-of-function research and therefore failed to address safety concerns or problems with the gain-of-function research moratorium. Now, Project Veritas also produced an August 2021 letter from U.S. Marine Corps Major General, or I'm sorry, Major Joseph Mercy, who's a former DARPA fellow. And Major Murphy wrote this summary after finding conveniently misfiled documents. Now, if you don't want to plow through the documents, Project Veritas' video explains what's going on. I want to just give you an, a couple of minutes of excerpt of this so you can, can hear some of the questioning that was going down in the Senate earlier this week. Senator, with all due respect, I disagree with so many of the things that you've said. You're still unwilling to admit that they gained in function, they gained in lethality. According to the definition that is currently (laughs) operable, we're not going to get anywhere close to trying to prevent another lab leak of this dangerous sort of experiment. You won't admit that it's dangerous, and for that lack of judgment, I think it's time that you resign. Project Veritas has obtained never-before-seen military documents regarding the origins of COVID-19, gain-of-function research, vaccines, potential treatments which have been suppressed, and the government's effort to conceal all of this. Dr. Anthony Fauci has testified many times before Congress stating that the U.S. government was never involved in gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Will you today finally take some responsibility for funding gain-of-function research in Wuhan? Senator, with all due respect, I disagree with so many of the things that you've said. Gain, first of all, gain-of-function is a very nebulous term. But That's, the thing is, is you're still unwilling to admit that they gained in function when they say they became sicker. They gained in right. lethality. It's a right. new virus. That's not gain-of-function? According to the definition that is currently (laughs) operable, we're not going to get anywhere close to trying to prevent another lab leak of this dangerous sort of experiment. You won't admit that it's dangerous, and for that lack of judgment, I think it's time that you resign. You have said that I am unwilling to take any responsibility for the current pandemic. I have no responsibility for the current pandemic. That assertion is based on the NIH's definition of gain of function. However, the documents we've obtained refute that. The documents in question stem from a report at the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, better known as DARPA, which were hidden in a top-secret share drive. But what is DARPA? They are an agency under the U.S. Department of Defense, which facilitates research and technology with potential military applications. Dr. Stephen Walker was the director of DARPA at the time of the EcoHealth Alliance proposal. A source sent us this video of Dr. Walker talking about research they were exploring related to mRNA technology and its potential application with military personnel in the field. DARPA, about 
five, six years ago, we stood up an office called uh, the Biotechnology Office, and the real purpose of that was to understand how biology worked and then build design, uh, design build and test cycles where you could um, engineer microorganisms to do things that you want to do. Though the main report regarding the EcoHealth Alliance proposal leaked on the Internet a couple of months ago, it has remained unverified until now. Project Veritas has obtained a separate report to the Inspector General of the Department of Defense, written by the U.S. Marine Corps Major Joseph Murphy, a former DARPA fellow. Major Murphy makes claims in his report to the Inspector General that, if true, could be damning to the official narrative that has been played out to the world over the past two years. Major Murphy's report states that EcoHealth Alliance approached DARPA in March 2018, seeking funding to conduct gain-of-function research of bat-borne coronaviruses. The proposal was named Project Diffuse. DARPA rejected the proposal because the work was too dangerous and could violate the gain-of-function moratorium, despite EcoHealth's position that it would not. According to the documents, the NIAID, under the direction of Dr. Fauci, did not reject the proposal. They went ahead with the research at Wuhan and several sites across the U.S. Dr. Fauci has repeatedly maintained his position, under oath, that the NIH and NIAID have not been involved in gain-of-function research with the EcoHealth Alliance program. This appears to be contradictory to Major Murphy's analysis and the rejection from the Biological Technologies Office at DARPA. Major Murphy's report goes on to detail great concern over the COVID-19 gain-of-function program, the concealment of documents, the suppression of potential curatives like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, and the mRNA vaccines. To be clear, Major Murphy is not the source of our reporting. As far as we're aware, he has done nothing that violates his oath of service to our country. We were able to track him down, and though he couldn't go into detail about the hidden documents, he did offer this heartfelt statement. I offer no comments on the investigation or internal Marine Corps deliberations. I offer a brief comment to those that desire answers and to those that withhold them. To those seeking answers, I offer encouragement. There are good people striving for the truth, working together in and out of government, and they succeed. To those that withhold, I pray for you. Find the moral courage to come forward. Don't let a lie be our legacy to posterity. People will forgive. A commitment to truth is in the heart of this nation. Semper Fi. Project Veritas reached out to DARPA for comment regarding the hidden documents and spoke with the Chief of Communications, Jared Adams. It doesn't sound normal to me, no. Like I said, if, it, if something resides in a classified setting, then it should be appropriately marked. I'm not at all familiar with unmarked documents that reside in a classified, in a classified space, no. Um, that, like I said, that doesn't, doesn't sound like, I mean, it's, it's not good practice to put unmarked materials in um, you know, in a, in a classified space, but there may be there may be cause to because um, something is determined to be classified, um, but it wasn't you know originally marked appropriately. I'd be happy, Robert, honestly, to investigate and you know talk to the people who would own this document within the agency. Ideally, the you know the director of the biological technologies office or the deputy director of that office and try to ascertain. why it was the case. So here's the question. If the Department of Defense, the same people who make our nuclear arsenal, felt this research was too dangerous to proceed with, 
Why in the world did the NIH, NIAID, and EcoHealth Alliance recklessly disregard the risks involved? Did they purposefully change the definition of gain of function in order to bypass the moratorium? Further, who at DARPA made the decision to bury the original report that could have raised red flags to the Pentagon, the White House, or Congress, which may have prevented this entire pandemic that has led to the deaths of 5.4 million people worldwide and caused much pain and suffering to many millions more. Okay, that's uh, that's the Project Veritas video. It's seven minutes of your life that... It's probably best if you watch the video for yourself because they can show you the actual highlighted documents and, and so forth, but... Going to an article here from Andrea Widberg on AmericanThinker.com. She points out that Major Murphy's summary of what took place after 2018, when DARPA rejected that EcoHealth proposal, is very illuminating. In fact, she says, if you have the time, read all 24 pages. But for now, here are two points that you really should take away. The first is that since April 2020, it's been known within the government that both ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine are curatives because of how they interact with the virus's engineered spike protein. Now, in this case, uh, Andrea Whitberg says that I happen to believe that the administrative state, Democratic Party, and media, but I repeat myself, quashed this information first to destroy Trump's re-election chances and then to maintain steady pressure on Americans to conform with the jab regime. She also points out that the second point here is what Major Murphy wrote about EcoHealth's journey from DARPA to Fauci's NIAID. Now, it has to be understood, Major Murphy has no firsthand knowledge of what Fauci ultimately saw. Instead, as Major Murphy explains, he was privy to the original DARPA documents as well as the documents from the Wuhan lab, which allowed him to tie the two together. So, Andrea Widberg says, in other words, if I understand correctly what he wrote... While he knows that EcoHealth connected with Fauci, he has no firsthand knowledge of whatever information, written or oral, EcoHealth gave to Fauci. So this is this is from um, this is from Major Murphy. Quote: Being defense related, it makes sense that EcoHealth submitted the proposal first to the Department of Defense before it settled with NIH NIAID. Now. Notice the passive formulation of before it settled with phrasing. That means that Murphy didn't know the terms of the settlement. As is known, Dr. Fauci with NIAID did not reject the proposal, end quote. Now, we can turn to Fauci's straw man denial on Tuesday when he appeared before the Senate. Rand Paul went after him vigorously, which led to Fauci's wonderful self-own as he held aloft a sign saying, Fire Dr. Fauci. In addition to Rand Paul, Senator Roger Marshall from Kansas grilled Fauci regarding the latter's insistence that his department never funded gain-of-function research. That's a video worth watching as well. But here's what Andrea Woodberg noticed. She says, aside from Fauci's creepy, repeated little flick of his tongue beginning at 2 minutes 48 seconds into the video, Fauci limits his denial to having seen the grant request, which is probably true. What he doesn't say is that he never had different communications with EcoHealth or received different information. In fact, he also continued in his refusal to produce all the documents in his possession. So here's what Dr. Fauci said, quote, 
it really pains me to have to just point out to the American public how absolutely incorrect you are. What came out last night on Project Veritas was a grant that was submitted to DARPA. Then it distorted and said, we funded the grant. We have never seen that grant, and we have never funded that grant. So once again, you are completely and unequivocally incorrect when you join the DARPA proposal was a grant that we never saw and we did not fund. So you are incorrect, sir. Why don't we go and look at the Veritas statement? They were talking about a grant that was submitted to DARPA. Okay, so here's the rhetorical trickery. By focusing entirely on that grant, Fauci manages not to answer whether he received a similar proposal, whether formal or informal, from EcoHealth. And that's true because NIAID would never receive a DARPA grant in the first place. So what Fauci could have said was something along the lines of, EcoHealth never came to us with any proposal. But instead, he slithers around, tongue flickering, trying to distance himself from that grant. So Andrea Woodberg says, look, maybe Fauci didn't really see anything at all. Maybe he just accidentally gave EcoHealth lots of taxpayer money to go to the CCP military-allied Wuhan Institute of Virology and conduct gain-of-function research on bat viruses. But she says, I'd be hard-pressed to believe that story. See, I'm really grateful for people who are willing to ask inconvenient questions like this. And and as far as Fauci goes, and again, I'm, I'm focusing on personalities rather than principles, so... Forgive me for this departure from, from my usual staid, you know, principled approach here. Let's, let's take the high road. But it's very clear that, uh, that Fauci is not about to accept any responsibility. I mean, he was there for all the accolades. I am science. I am the embodiment of science. They're questioning the science. They're questioning me. Yeah, that, that inflated sense of self-importance has served him well and kept him in the spotlight. And I think he's really enjoyed, you know, the, the celebrity that goes along with that. But the man who considers himself the embodiment of science has made it very clear he's not about to accept any responsibility for the actual damage done by he and other health officials in their COVID response. Now, Fauci actually said something along the lines of, uh, you know, I'm not going to take responsibility for this. So how did he put it? He was telling he was telling Senator Rand Paul what's going to happen here. I think he, I think he says uh, all this criticism you're offering me. I was merely following CDC guidelines. This is kind of a modern version of I was merely following orders. So apparently he is at least ready for Nuremberg, right? I mean, that's, isn't that the excuse that the folks gave at Nuremberg? But in the meantime, we have this question. Is anyone going to accept responsibility for what's happened? I've got an article here from Joaquin Book writing for the Brownstone Institute. It's brownstone.org. And this is how he starts out. He says, in a Senate hearing, Rand Paul said plainly to Anthony Fauci what everyone knows and is the most easily documented fact in the U.S. experience of the pandemic. Quote, you are the one responsible. You are the architect. You are the lead architect for the response from the government. End quote. Fauci very quickly protested, Senator, first of all, if you look at everything I said, you accuse me of, in a monolithic way, telling people what they need to do. Everything that I've said has been in support of the CDC guidelines. 
And Joaquin Book says this is the model that will consume all public discussion of the pandemic response in the future. Seeking but never finding anyone to bear responsibility. And it's typical for episodes in history that are characterized by mass frenzy and distorted fanaticism. Once the mania is gone, it's hard to find anyone willing to accept responsibility for feeding it and acting upon it. Now, he has an excellent article here that demonstrates the historic precedent for this. In fact, he starts with a quote from Stefan Zwig, writing in the 1930s and 40s, describing the mood in Vienna at the beginning of Europe's first attempt at collectivist self-destruction, the Great War, or World War I. Quote, It soon became impossible to converse reasonably with anyone in the first war weeks of 1914. The most peaceable and the most good-natured were intoxicated with the smell of blood. Friends whom I had looked upon as decided individualists and even as philosophical anarchists changed overnight into fanatic patriots and from patriots into insatiable annexitionists. End quote. Joaquin Book says, look, we look in the past for some inkling of what, however horrific, may lay in the cards for our future. And Zwig's romantic and well-written story, The World of Yesterday, Memoirs of a European, is one of the most powerful and celebrated accounts of what went wrong with the Golden Age before 1914. In fact, he says, throughout the pandemic, I've returned to his terrifying words again and again. Now, many of us today can relate to the quote above. Once more, we try to find our way out of a collectivist self-destruction. How does one engage with those so riled up by bloodlust and outgroup intolerance who, just a few years before, had been both respectful and affectionate? See, when something big changes in the world, the kind of thing that demands and mainstreams everyone's attention. For Zwig and his friends, it was a nationalistic war. For us, it's a pandemic of unstoppable domination. Uncrossable divides seem to turn friend into foe. However do we mend these wounds? Well, most of us just give up and check out. Zwig certainly did. He said, nothing remained but to withdraw into oneself and to keep silent while others ranted and raved. This too shall pass, or so one hopes, says Joaquin Book, but does it take a few months or years? What if it takes decades? See, the impossible question from realizing that this personal and societal gap won't heal is whom to hold responsible once the mad rush ends. Jeffrey Tucker observes that the buck doesn't seem to stop with anyone. And those who make some of the critical pandemic decisions are quietly and sometimes not so quietly exiting the scene. Tucker says everyone had an alibi. It became one big mush of bureaucracy with no accountability. The buck is always passed on and up in the chain of command but no one will accept the blame and bear the consequences. So we all seem to agree that somebody somewhere did something wrong. Now, what exactly that was and who, therefore, was to blame? Well, unfortunately, that remains unclear. I mean, you think about this think tanks of this or that ideological flavor have written long, exhaustive reports of what went wrong, including the names of the guilty. And this is like, uh, take, for instance, the great financial crisis of 2007-2008. They were trying to figure out who's responsible for this. 600-page report. They used the blame, the word blame 22 times, but it's never levied at an identifiable person. Instead, it's just institutions. Well, the SEC, the mortgage brokers, the underwriters, Fannie and Freddie, the complexity of the supervisory system. 
And the same thing is likely to happen to the origins of SARS-CoV-2 and the pandemic debacles in the last two years. Nobody will ever be found responsible for any of the many strategic lapses that guaranteed mismanagement of the pandemic before it even began. Some people will blame certain officials. But will anybody actually say the buck stops here? So, if you share a commitment to truth, this is something that should matter to you. And I, I share this information with you not in the hopes that, uh, you know, it gets you riled up to fire up the torches and grab your pitchfork and, you know, get to work. But more, we want to see this kind of accountability because we don't want to see these kinds of mistakes made again. So, if you feel called to speak the truth, I would say speak the truth. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. I'm excited to talk about a new product from Healthy Cell, AC11. This is a patented bioactive extract of Uncaria tomentosa from the Amazon rainforest. It supports cell DNA repair and health span. It's a dietary supplement. I'm excited to try it. Many are interested in longevity and attenuation of senescence. We know that telomere length and other uh, biologic measures are related to senescence in uh, 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 clinical and uh, preclinical studies, particularly of animal models. And I can tell you as a doctor, dietary supplements do hold the promise of attenuating repair and damage in our body due to stress, physical wear and tear, sunlight, etc. And there's a tremendous opportunity for supplements to help us in this area. And so Healthy Cell has brought a product to market for you to try as part of your health portfolio. So please go to HealthyCell.com and in the promotional code, list out loud for 20% off your first purchase of products from Healthy Cell. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Because of COVID-19, many Americans worry about their health four times a day. That's 112 times per month. But by simply keeping our immune system strong, we can stay healthy and put our worries at ease. One little known way to do this is by taking AC11, a patented supplement from a plant in the Amazon rainforest. Studied for over 20 years and backed by over 40 scientific peer-reviewed studies, Taking AC11 has been proven to extend the life of immune cells called leukocytes, allowing you to boost immunity naturally. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of AC11. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. AmericaOutloud.com. Simply put, we're patriots who believe in Ronald Reagan's vision of a shining city on a hill. From sea to shining sea, you can listen in on iHeartRadio. Our free apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa, or our world-class media player. America Out Loud Talk Radio liberty and justice for all. Look down deep into my eyes as I 
Well, hello there, and once again, welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty show here on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Brian Hyde, and it's it's a real privilege to get to speak the truth. Now, I'm not saying that like it's it's just all sunshine and roses and everybody's happy to hear it. Some people aren't. And in fact, some people uh, who otherwise are very nice, reasonable, <laughs> normal folks will consider you to be somewhat of an enemy if you cause them to confront or notice things that they're just not ready to notice. So to everybody out there who's doing their part to just simply be a source of light in a, in a fairly darkening period of time, uh, my hat goes off to you. It, it, takes, it takes courage to speak the truth. I want to share with you uh, some thoughts here. In the last segment, we talked a little bit about who's going to accept responsibility for all of the, the lockdowns, the mandates, all of the, the crazy things that have been forced on us in the name of protecting us over the last couple of years. And, you know, the funny thing about it is maybe it's, maybe it's understandable. You know, everybody wants the accolades. Nobody really wants to, to face the music for things that didn't go right. But one thing you can count on, no matter how things turn out, no matter how they try to spin it, the, the folks who are responsible for destroying so many lives and livelihoods always will fall back on, hey, we were just doing what we had to do in order to protect you. I wanted to share with you a commentary from, uh, this is from the Tenth Amendment Center's Mike Meharry. The power to protect is the power to control. This is a great civics lesson. He says, most people think the federal government should guarantee their rights. In other words, they think the U.S. government should police state and local governments to ensure that they don't violate their rights. Now, practically speaking, the federal government does this through the indoctrin—I'm sorry, the incorporation doctrine. This Supreme Court-created legal principle applies the Bill of Rights to the states through the 14th Amendment. And the incorporation doctrine provides a legal pathway for people to sue over rights violations in federal courts. So, for instance, if somebody thinks a local cop violated the Fourth Amendment warrant requirement, they will sue that police department in a federal court. Or if a state passes a restrictive gun law, they'll sue the state in federal court, citing a violation of the Second Amendment. Now, Mike Meharry says it's easy to see the appeal of this strategy. State governments often violate our rights, and it's reasonable to conclude that, therefore, we need a more powerful body to keep them in check. The federal government fits the bill. After all, we have this thing called a Bill of Rights. But that's not what was intended by the founding generation. Now, hear him out here. He says the Bill of Rights was never intended to apply to the states. And the preamble to the Bill of Rights makes this clear. Quote, the conventions of a number of states having at the time of their adopting the Constitution expressed a desire in order to prevent misconstruction or abuse of its powers that further declaratory and restrictive clauses should be added and as extending the ground of public confidence in the government will best ensure the beneficent ends of its institution. End quote. Now, the, the words, its powers, clearly refer back to the Constitution, which applies to the federal government. The Bill of Rights was intended to prevent misconstruction or abuse of the Constitution's powers as exercised through the government, the federal government. You notice the word government is not plural. So the Bill of Rights makes no mention of state governments. 
In fact, the state ratifying conventions had no intention of restricting their state's own powers. They already had state constitutions to do that job. Now, during the Philadelphia Convention, James Madison proposed the federal government should have veto power over state laws. But the framers rejected this for good reason. And the incorporation doctrine effectively instituted what the founding generation had rejected. He says, during the debate over the ratification of the Constitution, one of the greatest fears voiced by opponents was the specter of consolidation. The founding generation used that term, consolidation, to describe a centralized government with vast power and control. And many founders warned of its danger. For instance, during the Virginia Ratifying Convention, Patrick Henry issued a stark warning, quote, dangers are to be apprehended in whatever manner we proceed, but those of a consolidation are the most destructive, end quote. He also went on to warn that consolidation would end in the destruction of our liberties. Why? Well, as William Davy told the North Carolina Ratifying Convention, so extensive a country as this can never be managed by one consolidated government. Thomas Jefferson also warned about the problem of consolidation as a practical matter in an 1800 letter to Gideon Granger, wisely observing that the United States were too large to be governed by a central authority. Jefferson said, our country is too large to have all its affairs directed by a single government. Public servants at such a distance and from under the eye of their constituents will, from the circumstance of distance, be unable to administer and overlook all the details necessary for the good government of the citizen, and at the same circumstance by rendering detection impossible to their constituents, will invite the public agents to corruption, plunder, and waste. End quote. So a few politicians and bureaucrats just can't competently deal with local issues thousands of miles away, try as they might. And yet Americans have rushed headlong into consolidation to their detriment. Mike Meharry says the incorporation doctrine is nothing but a pathway to consolidation because it centralizes power at the federal level and leaves the states at the mercy of federal courts. Now, sometimes the courts issue an opinion favorable to liberty, but more often than not, they expand government power, particularly federal government power. In other words, consolidation. During the Delaware Ratifying Convention, some delegates argued the proposed Constitution needed an amendment to empower the federal government to guarantee religious freedom in the states. Henry Marchant responded with a poignant warning, saying it will be dangerous to call upon the new general government for a guarantee of religious freedom in the states. For the power to guarantee turns quickly into a power to control. Now, Mike Meharry says Marchant digs down to the root problem of depending on federal power to protect your rights. Because in so doing, it gives the federal government more control over your life. And most of the time, it doesn't even protect your rights. Look at how the Supreme Court's power to protect religious liberty turned out. We have federal courts dictating Christmas displays in local parks. Why would anyone want federal officials involved in such local concerns? He says the key to protecting people from government power is limiting government power, not handing the government even more power. Never forget, power always comes down to control. Like I say, that's kind of a nifty civics lesson there in the space of one column. And if you haven't checked out what the Tenth Amendment Center is up to, if you haven't subscribed to their emails or you you don't regularly check out their essays, they're a very, very worthwhile resource 
particularly if you want to be a bit of a wrong thinker, which anybody who wants to be free these days probably should consider that. Now, speaking of being a wrong thinker, well, this is one of those times where thinking aloud or at least uh, openly questioning the official narrative is something that's being discouraged. Not just, you know, hey, that's that's out of step with the public, but more like the entire federal government is being weaponized against those who question the narrative. Case in point, uh, we just passed the January 6th anniversary just a short time ago, and the political class in Washington, D.C. is doing everything in their power to convince us that uh, this was evidence of the worst threat of all, a threat to our democracy. And and it's been kind of alarming to see some of the, the rhetoric that uh, the president is using here currently, talking about how we take seriously the idea to protect our democracy from enemies, foreign, and with his emphasis, and domestic. I mean, it really sounds like uh, they are, they being those within the federal government and that power apparatus, they're very frightened about something. And I don't think it's because, all oh, the average citizens are rising up and engaging in violence in the streets. Not the average citizens. Yes, some black bloc clad uh, left-wing activists may be doing that, but somehow they get a pass. In the meantime, Grandma walking around in the U.S. Capitol with an American flag in her hand after being waved through the door by a Capitol Police officer. She's the one sitting in a jail cell right now, along with several hundred other people charged with, you know, with uh, violating our temple of democracy. Although, interestingly enough, no one, to my knowledge, has actually been charged with insurrection. The word that the political class keeps using to describe what took place on January 6th. Even more interesting is no one in a position of officialdom from Attorney General Merrick Garland right on down to, I'm sorry, I forget the name of the FBI spokesperson who was being questioned uh, just uh, the other day on Capitol Hill about uh, were there federal assets, like were there undercover agents, were there informants, were there provocateurs within that crowd? One of them in particular is a guy by the name of Ray Epps who has been caught on video very clearly encouraging people to go out there and to to go to the Capitol the night before January 6th. He was out there on the streets in Washington, D.C., and he's you know playing before the cameras and telling people, I'm probably going to get arrested for what I'm going to say, but what we need to do tomorrow is we need to go to the Capitol. We need to get in the Capitol. That's where our problems are coming from. And you know what's funny? The crowd at that time was like, no, no, no. In fact, they started chanting, fed, fed, fed. Because what he was saying was so, uh, it was so provocative. As in like an agent provocateur would say that kind of stuff. And yet the very next day, there was Ray Epps right at the front of the crowd. Everybody, the capital is in this direction. This is the way we need to go. This is where our problem is. We need to get inside the capital. And even when they got to the capital. Here's Ray Epps acting as kind of a buffer between the Capitol Police and the people who were protesting. And I don't mean acting as a buffer like telling people, everybody calm down, let's not do anything. I mean, he was there pointing people where to go. Now, interestingly enough, Ray Epps was on the FBI's most wanted list when it came to people it was looking for in connection with the events of January 6th. But then he was quietly removed. He's not been charged with any crime. It's funny that uh, when people were asked, when, when Merrick Garland was asked, were there federal assets that were operating or participating in those protests? 
I can't comment on an ongoing investigation. He doesn't want to say anything. This FBI spokesperson, the same thing. Asked directly, was Ray Epps working for the feds? I cannot answer that question. And every time the, the, the questioner would come back with it, I think it was, I think it may have been Ted Cruz was asking her, you know, well, well there's another way of asking it. Were there, were there federal assets there? I cannot answer that question. You know, the presumption of innocence is something that is part of American jurisprudence. It's part of due process. And it applies to us, to you and me. Anytime we go before the government, there is supposed to be a presumption of innocence. Until the government, the state has proven beyond a reasonable doubt that uh, that we have, in fact, you know, taken part in something, you know, that uh, that is criminal or that is otherwise, you know, uh, prohibited. Now, government doesn't get that same benefit of the doubt. When government officials start to obfuscate or they they refuse to answer questions. I don't think it is at all out of character for us to presume. Guilt. On the part of those officials. And the fact that they're not saying anything about this, they refuse to say. In fact, um, the AP just did a fact check. Well, you know, Ray Epps, that's just a conspiracy theory that somehow has been launched into mainstream consciousness. So again, the establishment mouthpieces are assuring us, well, the establishment isn't uh, doing anything wrong. And, and uh, there's nothing to see here. Look away, citizen. Nothing in this direction. I mean, I don't want to sound paranoid, but... Uh, there's no way in hell I'm going to trust these people to tell me that, yeah, there's, there's nothing going on here. Why? Because we said so. Trust me. <laughs> we, we said that it's totally innocent. I'll give you another example of this. Have you noticed how little the media is saying about the alleged plot to kidnap Michigan Governor, uh, what's her name, Whitmer, Gretchen Whitmer, thank you. Julie Kelly, writing for AmericanGreatness.com, says, that uh, virtual that virtual blackout on the uh, kidnap plot isn't an accident. In fact, she lays out the likely cause of why the case itself is imploding. She says, once upon a time in America, a high-profile federal prosecution imploding amid credible accusations of FBI entrapment would earn wall-to-wall headlines in the national news media. So, just for instance... A wife-beating FBI agent who used at least one criminal informant and a dozen more government assets to concoct a plot to abduct a sitting governor intended to create damaging headlines for an incumbent president right before Election Day would receive nonstop coverage on cable and broadcast news outlets. Social media would have been flooded with all the juicy details. Names like Richard Trask and Stephen Robeson would be household names. But Julie Kelly says none of that's happening with the Justice Department's rapidly crumbling case against several men arrested for allegedly conspiring to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer from her vacation cottage in the fall of 2020. Now, defense attorneys have made a strong case that without the FBI's guiding hand and deep pockets, courtesy of American taxpayers, the scheme would never have materialized past random social media chatter. Five defense attorneys writing in a December 25th motion said the undisputed evidence establishes that government agents and informants concocted, hatched, and pushed this kidnapping plan from the beginning, doing so against defendants who explicitly repudiated the plan. This is one of several defense filings that details proof of an elaborate FBI operation to lure their clients into the abduction caper. And just for the record, this is not the first time the FBI has engaged in this kind of stuff. 
You look back at most of the different terror plots, particularly the militia terror plots that the FBI has saved us from. In almost every case, you're going to find that those plots were something that originated within the FBI itself. Meaning, they put agents or um, informants out there looking for someone disaffected, looking for someone that they could go around and suggest something to. Man, you know, it's time we fight back. It's time somebody somebody needs to blow up this building or someone needs to do this or assassinate that person. And they're just looking for one person misled enough or dumb enough to nod their head and say, yeah, I agree, man. You know, I'm mad. And, and then, you know, well, listen, I know a guy who knows a guy. He can get us explosives. He can get us uh, whatever we need. And they just start building the plot from there. And then, of course, the FBI comes out. Well, we made a very dramatic arrest of six people today that were accused of plotting this terror plot. But the crazy thing is those six people that they arrested by themselves would never have come up with it. They needed to be led. They needed to be prodded in a predictable direction. And the bad actors in the government script, according to Julie Kelly, keep finding themselves in more trouble. For instance, in the case of the alleged kidnapping plot against Governor Whitmer, Richard Trask, the lead FBI agent on the case, was fired for physically assaulting his wife in a drunken rage following a swinger party last summer. Body camera footage made public last month shows a shirtless, clearly inebriated Trask being arrested by local police. By the way, he was not charged with driving under the influence. A Michigan news station recently unearthed unearthed Trask's uh, Trump-hating rants posted on social media in 2020. If you still support our piece of S, President, you can F off, Trask wrote on Facebook at the same time he was investigating threats against Whitmer. Trask said he hoped people who support Trump would burn in hell. See, that's the kind of impartiality that makes me feel confident. We can trust these people to do the right thing. Two other FBI agents working with Trask at the Detroit FBI field office who handled multiple informants have also been dismissed from the case. FBI agent Jason Chambers is accused of running a security business on the side, and FBI agent Henrik Impola is accused of committing perjury in another case. Now, the Justice Department just notified the court that Trask, Chambers, and Impola are no longer on the government's witness list. And just when it looked like things couldn't get worse for prosecutors, Stephen Robeson, a main informant and convicted felon, has been charged with committing two other crimes while directing the Whitmer kidnapping ruse. Prosecutors last week accused Robeson of acting as a double agent. Prosecutors said Robeson broke an agreement with the FBI by offering charity money to buy weapons to be used in attacks, illegally obtained weapons, and offered personal equipment, including a drone, to aid in committing domestic terrorism. Now, not only is Robeson off the government's witness list, but the Justice Department is fighting to stop defense attorneys from presenting damning evidence of Robeson's involvement during the trial, which is scheduled to begin in March. Now, all this salacious drama should be front-page news. After all, when the Justice Department announced the kidnapping charges in a press release back on October 8th of 2020, it was a bonanza for the corporate media right before Election Day. The shocking news resulted in widespread condemnation of Donald Trump, blamed once again for promoting violence against his political opponents and emboldening the so-called militia groups loyal to him. Whitmer made an emotional statement the day the charges were announced, accusing Trump of encouraging domestic terrorists who tried to kill her. 
and Joe Biden, quickly seizing on the politically advantageous moment, blasted Trump's dog whistles to violent extremists. Julie Kelly says dozens of articles and columns were posted at the New York Times, the Washington Post, Politico, and other influential publications in a matter of hours. A thwarted plot could thwart Trump, two Politico reporters predicted. Mary McCord, a former Obama Justice Department official and perpetual Trump antagonist, had a New York Times column that uh, that seemed to... Uh, seemed ready to go on the very same day that her former employer publicly revealed the plot. By the way, McCord is now advising the January 6th select committee. The Washington Post published a guest column by Whitmer herself on October 9th, repeating her allegations that Trump was responsible. In fact, Whitmer made the media rounds for days, conveniently playing the victim to Trump's villain as early voting was underway in her swing state. Whitmer complained on NBC's Meet the Press, it's incredibly disturbing that the President of the United States, 10 days after a plot to kidnap me, put me on trial and execute me, 10 days after that was uncovered, the President is at it again and inspiring and incentivizing and inciting this kind of domestic terrorism. Hey, at least she's not engaging in hyperbole, right? CNN ran numerous articles about the thwarted plot. Jake Tapper confronted both Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, a Republican, and Lara Trump, with accusations that the president was responsible for the alleged attack. Why does he continue to use such heightened rhetoric at a time when her life was literally in danger, according to the FBI? Tapper asked Lara Trump on October 18th. Now, Julie Kelly says, considering all the histrionics and allegations that Trump incited a a potential domestic terror attack, attempted murder even, it seems that these same journalists would eagerly cover all the evidence emerging in the case ahead of the March 8th trial. But the Whitmer kidnapping plot hasn't just been memory-holed by the national media. It faces what one can only assume as a coordinated and intentional news blackout. Tapper, a copious tweeter, has not tweeted anything about the Whitmer kidnapping ruse since October of 2020. CNN, The Washington Post, The New York Times, and Politico, they haven't punished any, published any news about the Whitmer case in months. MSNBC aired one interview last month on a recent defense motions to dismiss the case on grounds of entrapment. Former prosecutor Joyce Vance opined there's a zero chance the Michigan judge will drop the federal charges. Now, the last time the New York Times printed Richard Trask's name was in October of 2020, after he testified that rogue militia groups were involved in the kidnapping plot. Ditto for October 2020 mentions in Politico and CNN. Trask's name is dying in darkness over at the Washington Post, which has never published his name in any Whitmer-related article. Apparently, a federal cop who nearly strangled his wife to death after a swinger party then received a slap-on-the-wrist sentence for the assault is of no interest to the otherwise man-and-cop-loathing reporters and columnists at the nation's most influential news organizations. Now, to its credit... BuzzFeed is the only outlet on the left that has relentlessly covered the government's imploding prosecution. BuzzFeed reporters Ken Bensinger and Jessica Garrison have produced a string of detailed investigative reports worthy of awards despite an obvious political slant. So Julie Kelly asks, why the media blackout? She says it's because the news media know that any coverage of the FBI-concocted plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer is going to bolster suspicions that the FBI played a key, if not primary, role in the events leading up to and including January 6th. After all, the Justice Department continually ties the two events together. 
describing both as acts of domestic terror and, of course, blaming President Trump for both. Now, the head of the Detroit FBI field office was promoted to the D.C. FBI field office one week after the Whitmer kidnapping arrests were announced in October 2020. Stephen D'Antuano is now in charge of the same office that deployed agents to the Capitol grounds on January 6th and is aiding in the prosecution of more than 700 Americans arrested for participating in the protest. So Julie Kelly says it's impossible to report on the Whitmer case without connecting it to January 6th. So rather than do its job, the national news media is completely ignoring this sensational story. Too many insurrectionists to smear and destroy, apparently. I mean, this is, this is something worth keeping an eye on. If for no other reason, this, this illustrates the, the depth of that disconnect between our, our mass media and the truth. And it's not so much that, oh, they're just blasting us with, with bold-faced lies all the time, because that would be easy enough to debunk. I think the manipulation of the public's consciousness or the manipulation of the public's perceptions of what is real, what is important, you know, what really matters often can be found in the stories that the press ignores or downplays. I mean, come on, the Hunter Biden laptop story? Now, I'll grant you, the, the timing of that story would have been, uh, shall we say, unfortunate for Joe Biden had the media decided to cover it, but they didn't. They very consciously turned a blind eye. I think it was uh, PBS said, well, you know, we, uh, we try not to focus on things that cannot be verified and so forth. And then quietly, quietly after the election, it comes out that, well, it appears there was some substance to this uh, laptop. And, uh, you know, then, then the questions come out, well, did Project Veritas, you know, break some kind of law? I mean, the FBI swooped in and grabbed a bunch of stuff from them and, you know, basically made them look like they were guilty of something. When in reality, someone else had approached Project Veritas who refused to publish the the contents until they could get some kind of verification that this was, in fact, Hunter Biden's laptop, which it appears it was. I mean, there's a reason why I consume as little mainstream media content as possible. Now, you can accuse me of being an ostrich and sticking my head in the sand, but it's more a matter of a conscious decision. I don't feed my mind things that are the equivalent of intellectual fast food and not just intellectual fast food this is like this is like eating nothing but uh, deep fried twinkies and washing them down with the the oil that they were fried in garbage in garbage out and frankly i just i don't get much of anything of value now that doesn't mean that i totally you know am oblivious to anything that's going on in the mainstream media i just very consciously limit my intake once in a while i like to see what the you know the party line is and i would encourage you you know take a look at it but don't don't wade into it don't wallow in it it's so easy to become saturated with the negativity and with a sense of oh my gosh you know it's all hopeless and you know that i believe that the the news is reported in in many cases in such a way as to make us feel as though it's hopeless. You are hopelessly outnumbered. You are out of step. You may say you're a lover of freedom, but really you're just an insurrectionist at heart, and you are striking a deadly blow at the heart of our democracy, and therefore polite society cannot tolerate you. I mean, that's a pretty daunting thing to stand up to. 
especially when it's coming from people who are highly paid, blow-dried spinmeisters, and they're there to sell that idea to the rest of the public. There's certainly a a segment of the public that resonates with this and is willing to, to lap it up like so much milk out of a saucer. So here's the takeaway that, that I, I take from, from what mass media has to offer. It's best to unplug from the matrix, particularly if you, if you find yourself starting to feel angry or fearful. That's a good indication. You are being manipulated. And you can choose to limit your intake of things that don't really add value to your life. Now, I honestly try to do my best when I'm, when I'm talking about various issues or sharing various commentaries or articles. I want to focus on things that actually matter. I want to be a super spreader of information that hopefully empowers people and, and reinforces that desire to stand up for what is good and right in their lives. But I'll be the first to admit that it's a struggle. It's hard to do sometimes without engaging, you know, those fear mechanisms or those anger mechanisms that come along with the realization that someone is trying hard to play us. Either for fools, for dupes, or just for sheep that need to be, you know, spooked in a predictable direction. So let me end with this plea. Recognize that it is your mind and it is your worldview and you alone Get to call the shots. Don't take somebody's word for it. Don't take my word for it. Be willing to think as clearly and independently as you can and be that voice of truth. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network. <laughs>